what is the greatest sermon that you've ever heard? For some of you, you've been going to church for years and years, maybe even decades. You've heard hundreds of sermons. Some of you, maybe even over a thousand sermons. Maybe some of you, this is the first sermon you've ever heard today, which will be the best sermon you've ever heard today as well. <laughs> but also the worst sermon that you've ever heard, if it's your first. But what's the greatest sermon you've ever heard? This morning, you're going to hear one of the greatest ever. And I'm not talking about my sermon although I hope you're moved by that, I'm talking about the sermon delivered by Peter. That's what we're studying today in Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and one of the things that we are going to discover early on in this book is that about a third of the book of Acts is made up of sermons and speeches by different apostles and different uh, believers in the early church. Today we're going to read one of the lengthiest sermons in the book, in Acts 1, you remember, the disciples are all gathered together. They're in Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and to baptize them, to empower them to ministry and mission. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the believers are all together, about 120 of them. And the Spirit of God comes upon them. They're praying and they're waiting, they're expecting. And the Spirit of God comes upon them. And the text says that they began to speak in other tongues which here at this point of Acts means that they were speaking in known human languages that previously they have not learned. Now they begin speaking in these tongues, all the believers that are there, and this grabs the attention of the crowd. There's a mighty crowd at this point. It's the Pentecost holiday, which means that all, all Jewish people from all over the world are kind of converged in Jerusalem to celebrate God giving the law at Mount Sinai. So you've got this massive gathering of Jewish people from all over, in one place, and the believers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin speaking in the languages of all the people that are coming from all over the world, languages that they have not learned yet. It's a great miracle. Now, where we last left off, the crowd had mixed reactions to this miracle. They hear their language spoken, and, and yet some of them believe, and some of them perhaps we're, we're kind of a little off-put by this. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 13, this is where we left off. Some were saying, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So they're looking at the believers speaking in these languages, and, and they're saying they're just drunk. Bunch of babbling drunks. That's who these people are. A bunch of drunks that can't hold their alcohol. And this is where Peter, the leader of the 12 disciples, steps up and begins to preach one of the greatest sermons of all time. Now, like with all great sermons, Peter has a gripping introduction, something that grabs your attention. Speaking in tongues is a pretty gripping introduction, isn't it? And that's a great attention grabber, something to bring the crowd in. Now, the crowd starts kind of mocking the believers, but Peter does what many other preachers also do in great sermons. He begins the sermon with a joke. Look at verse 14 and 15. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's too early to be drunk. No one gets drunk this early in the morning. It's, he says third hour of the day. That's not 3 a.m., that's 9 a.m. The Jewish people started their day at 6 a.m., so the third hour would be 9 a.m. That was the hour they gathered for their first prayer. And then after that, they'd have breakfast. It's a pretty good routine, I think. I think. 
But Peter gets up and he says, look, it's too early for drinking. No one's drunk here. Now, beyond this opening joke, I do want you to pay attention to something else that Peter does and the way that Luke depicts Peter in these opening words. Think about this. Just days earlier, this is the same guy who was scared to speak about his faith to a little servant girl. And now he stands up and he addresses a crowd of thousands of people at a time and preaches one of the greatest sermons ever known. This is the Holy Spirit at work. When you don't think you can, the Holy Spirit can through you. He sounds like a prophet too, doesn't he? That's what I want you to notice. The way that Luke talks about him, the way that Peter speaks, he sounds like a good old-fashioned Old Testament prophet. Give ear to my words. That's prophet speak right there. Luke, the narrator, says he lifted up his voice and addressed them. That's actually the same word used in chapter 2, verse 4, when it says the Holy Spirit filled them and gave them utterance. So the Spirit of God gives them utterance, and now Peter stands and he boldly utters or addresses that crowd with the command and authority of a prophet and an apostle. The way that Luke steps, sets up this sermon, we should anticipate a great prophetic speech to come. And indeed, that's exactly what we get. Like all good preachers, Peter knows that his sermon should be rooted in the text of Scripture. So after his opening attention-grabbing introduction, he takes us right to the text of Scripture and begins to explain this is that. Take a look at the next paragraph, starting in verse 16. This is Peter preaching. He says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says, we're not drunk. The believers are speaking in all these different languages. The Holy Spirit had come and filled them, baptized them into the church, ushered in a new era for God's people. And he says, we're not drunk. But if we're not drunk, what are we? He says, this... In other words, everything that you just saw, this miracle of speaking in tongues, this filling of the Holy Spirit, this is what the Old Testament prophet Joel predicted would happen. And then he quotes this big, long passage from Joel chapter 2. Now, whenever we see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, it's always good practice to kind of go back to the Old Testament and say, what exactly was going on there? Look at the original context, have a better idea of, of how and why the New Testament authors are using that text. So I'm going to do that for you. Joel was a prophet of the Old Testament. His main message to the people of Israel was to warn Israel of a coming invasion. He symbolizes this invasion with a locust swarm. A foreign enemy is going to come upon Israel like a, a swarm of locusts and devastate the land. Now that prophecy began its fulfillment in 722 B.C. when Israel, the northern part, was overtaken by Assyria. Then later on, 586 B.C., when the southern part, Jerusalem, was overtaken by Babylon. And it also looks ahead to a future time of judgment as well. But Peter, or Joel is saying, after that destruction, 722, 586 B.C., God promises to restore the land and the people of Israel. 
And he says it's after that restoration that God makes this big promise in the book of Joel. God says sometime after that restoration, God will pour out his spirit, and then all these wonderful things will happen. People will prophesy. They will have dreams, and they will have visions. There will be signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Now, the question is, how exactly does Peter apply that passage? How does he take Joel 2 and apply it in his day? He starts by saying, this is what happened or what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is, in other words, this, Pentecost, this time that you're looking at now, the filling of the Spirit, the speaking in tongues, this is that. All these wonders in heaven and earth that you're seeing, this is the fulfillment of Peter or Joel's prophecy. Now, some people have a hard time with this. They have a hard time because they look at this text and they see that Joel is talking about things that don't seem to have happened on the day of Pentecost. We read about tongues of fire and we hear a sound of a great rushing wind and people speaking in in other tongues of God's wonders. But where did we read about people seeing visions and dreaming dreams and, and the sun turning to darkness and the moon turning to blood? Is he applying Joel metaphorically? Is he saying Joel's just kind of a symbol of what is happening at Pentecost? Or is he saying all this stuff is kind of in the future? This is just the beginning of this fulfillment? Now, personally, I think that there are a couple of clues in the text that help us to understand exactly how Peter sees Joel 2 fulfilled. First, I want you to look back at how Peter introduced the quote in verse 16. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is, present tense. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say this was, past tense. The fulfillment isn't something that happened and stopped or only happened in Jesus' ministry or, or only happened before the sermon began. He's saying this is, present tense, it's an ongoing fulfillment. Now second, the other thing I want you to see here is that Peter actually changes a few little things in Joel's passage. At least one of those things is is quite significant. Right at the very beginning, I'll put both of these passages up here on the screen at the same time. Joel has, it shall come to pass afterwards. After the restoration of Israel from exile, it shall come to pass. Peter subtly changes that to, and in the last days it shall be. Now when we hear that phrase, the last days, we have to think like a biblical author thinks. Usually when we hear the phrase last days, oftentimes we think like end times, seven-year tribulation, Jesus' return. We think last days, last days. But from the perspective of the biblical authors, the last days began at Jesus' first coming. I'll put this chart up here. I've shown this to you before. This is the perspective of New Testament writers. We tend to think of the end times or the last days as as just a short period of time right before Jesus' return. But the New Testament writers use that phrase, last days and end times, to talk about the entire period of time from the incarnation of Christ all the way to that second coming of Christ. 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 1 Corinthians 10:11 says that at the end of the ages it ha- or excuse me the end of the ages has come upon us. Hebrews 1:1 1, 1 and 2 says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. I could add other verses to that but I'll I'll leave it at that. 
from the perspective of the New Testament writers, the last days or the end times does not start sometime in the future. They didn't even start at Pentecost. The end times began at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means that when Peter adapts Joel's words to say, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit, he's not thinking about just the day of Pentecost. He's not thinking about just the events of the end times right before Jesus returns. He's thinking about the events that began at the first coming of Christ and will end at the second coming of Christ. I think a couple other observations also support that idea, that this fulfillment in Joel 2 starts before Pentecost and ends at the second coming. The very next verse after this long quote, verse 22, the verse where Peter begins to explain and apply the quote. Here's what Peter says. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Now notice that. Jesus did works and wonders and signs. What did Peter's quote in Joel say? Acts 2.19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Jesus performed works and wonders and signs as Joel predicted. So Peter uses the same words in Joel to apply to Jesus in his ministry. And I think based on Peter's application of this text, some of these things in Joel 2 began their fulfillment at Jesus' first coming. They carried forth into and through the apostolic ministry, but they began with Christ and his first coming. Now, the last thing I want you to see here is Acts 2.20 tells us that these things will come to pass before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And that day, according to the context in Joel and according to the way Acts uses it, that day is the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus. So in case I lost you along the way here, here's what I'm arguing. This prophecy of Joel that Peter quotes began its fulfillment in Jesus' first coming, his ministry on earth. It's going to continue to be fulfilled all the way until the second coming of Christ. Now what that means is that we don't have to try to shoehorn all of these different events into the day of Pentecost. Some people try to see the moon darkening and the sun darkening and all that. I don't know that we see that here at Pentecost or that we need to see it here. It means we don't have to try to find all of these events just in Jesus' ministry. I mean, it does tell us in the Gospels that the sun turned to darkness when Jesus died. It doesn't say anything about the moon turning to blood, though. That's probably future. Revelation 6 seems to reuse some of this image for something that will happen one day. But we don't have to try to push all of these events into the end times, end times either. Some of this was happening right there on the day of Pentecost. So let me ask you like this. Was Joel 2 fulfilled at the day of Pentecost, or in Jesus' day, or just in the future? Yes. All of the above. The answer is D, all of the above. I mean, what an exciting moment. Peter and the believers are standing in the middle of prophecy being fulfilled, as are we. The Holy Spirit within you is evidence of Joel chapter 2 being fulfilled. We are living in an age where the Holy Spirit is filling us to empower us to go out and do ministry and mission for the Great Commission. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we are all going to dream dreams or see visions on a daily basis. 
do miracles. Though I, I can't say that will never happen. I can't say that that doesn't happen. We aren't told that it's going to happen to every believer every day as a normal, reoccurring thing. But that same Holy Spirit that empowered the apostles for ministry and acts, that's the same Holy Spirit that empowers the church today in 2024 to do its work. In other words, all of this is driving towards that last statement that Peter quotes there, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we, the church, have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and to help people hear and understand and respond to that call. That's the message the church is to bring. Just what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, that's what Peter begins to explain in the next few verses. So let's look again at verse 22, and we'll read with it verse 23. This is how Peter applies this quote. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, it doesn't get much more direct than that in a sermon, does it? This is what I call the direct approach to evangelism. Sometimes you just need to tell it how it is. You don't spend years building a rapport with the person, spending developing a relationship and, and slow rolling the conversation. You, you have an opportunity right in front of you, and you take it, come what may. Peter says, you know this Jesus of Nazareth. God attested to him through many miracles and wonders and signs. I mean, some of the people I'm sure that were there had those miracles and wonders done to them. He was in your midst, Peter says. You yourselves know him. You saw his miracles. You heard his reputation. You know Jesus, and then you killed him. You crucified him. You nailed him to a cross and murdered him. Peter does not pull any punches here, does he? He doesn't sugarcoat this message. The Messiah came. He proved himself through what he did, and his own people killed him. Church, that's the starting point of the gospel. You cannot share the gospel without sharing the problem of sin. For the Jewish people, that, that problem was quite tangible and quite brutal. They killed the Messiah, literally. But they needed to be confronted with their sinfulness. They needed to be confronted with their blood guilt. Without a recognition of sin, there is no recognition of a Savior. How are you going to convince someone you need to be saved if you haven't convinced them what they need to be saved from? This is the starting point of the gospel. The starting point of calling on the name of the Lord is a recognition of why you need to call. We are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We need a Savior. Now, before we look at the second major part of this sermon, I want you to pay attention to a crucial balance that Peter strikes here with these two verses. We're going to see this sort of thing again later on in the book of Acts, but I want you to see it here first. Notice the balance in verse 22 and 23 between the sovereign plan of God and mankind's responsibility. God planned the death of Jesus. Peter says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge in Scripture is not just 
God sees in advance what's going to happen. Here, it's parallel with the plan of God. It was all part of God's sovereign purpose for humankind. But that does not diminish our human choice and responsibility and consequences of our sin. Human beings are still responsible for what we do. We chose our path willingly. We made a willing choice that had real consequences. God planned for Jesus to die on the cross at the hands of lawless men. And yet those lawless men were still responsible for everything that they did. They willingly chose what God determined for them to do. You see how that works? They are responsible for their sin, not God. And this is a pairing that we find all over Scripture and quite often in the book of Acts. God is supremely sovereign over every event and every human action. And yet we, at the same time, are moral, responsible beings who make real choices. And Peter presents those two truths side by side without embarrassment, without explanation, and without apology. God determined for Jesus to die on the cross. Human beings are responsible for his death. Those two things are true side by side. Now, apart from the theological implications of that statement, there are some very, very helpful applications for us to consider. I want to suggest to you even just one. If God can use the greatest act of evil in all of human history, killing his son, if he could use the greatest act of evil in all of human history to bring about the greatest good in all of human history, the offer of salvation to mankind, how much more can God work in the evils and the trials and the sufferings that we go through in our lives? Our problems are large to us, but they are small beans compared to the grand scope of redemptive history. God has a plan. It is a good plan. It works for the benefit of his glory and for the benefit of his people. We can rest in God's sovereignty, even if we don't all the time know and understand how it works together. So Peter quotes the Old Testament. He tells them the time has come, scriptures being fulfilled in your midst, and then he punches him in the gut. The Messiah has come, and you murdered him. But he doesn't leave him there, because here's the good news. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised Jesus from the dead. Praise the Lord. Peter says, you killed the Messiah, but the Messiah did not stay dead. And I love how Peter says this. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. That word pangs is used in other places of the Bible for birth pains, like a woman in labor. The idea here is that the resurrection is like a new birth, something totally new, a new era, a new age in the history of God's people. Death tried to hold Jesus in the grave. But I love it how Peter says this too. He says, it was not possible to hold him. The Messiah could not be held by death. And that's where Peter introduces his second long quote of the Old Testament to back up that statement. Look at verses 25 to 28. He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here Peter quotes Psalm 16, a psalm of David. And as with most psalms, Psalm 16, a David psalm, he's in trouble. There are hints within the psalm that unbelievers are attacking him, threatening his very life. But David has confidence that his ultimate hope is in God. Even if his life ends in death, David has confidence that God will vindicate me from that grave. As one of God's children, God will vindicate me from the grave. Death will not be the end all of my existence. There will be a resurrection to come. Now what does that have to do with Jesus' resurrection? Look at how Peter explains this quote in verses 29 to 32. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So David wrote Psalm 16. David wrote that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. But then David died, and David was buried. His grave was very well known at the time. You could go to it in Israel and see it at that time. His body was still in it, and his body, I'm sure, was decomposing. It was decaying. It was corrupting. So what Peter's saying here is he's saying this psalm could not have been only about David. Because he says, your Holy One will not see that corruption, that decay. Peter points out that David was a prophet, which means that David had the ability to speak about things of Christ before they happened. Psalm 16 is a prophecy about Jesus. And Peter says David spoke about Jesus when he said God will not allow him to be abandoned in Sheol or to see corruption. Through the resurrection, the prophecy of Psalm 16 was fulfilled. And Peter says, you're all witnesses to it. Some of you in the crowd have seen that empty grave. All of them have seen the effects of the Spirit of God in the believers. And that's Peter's point in the next verse, verse 33. He goes on to say, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured, poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven, And he takes his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to be poured out upon the believers. And Peter quotes that statement, or or backs up that statement with a third quote from Scripture. Third and final quote, verse 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he, he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here Peter quotes Psalm 110. And just like with Psalm 16, this is a psalm of David. And David is predicting that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of the Father. And again, Peter's looking at this and he's saying this was not true of David. He's not writing just about himself. David did not ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus did. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. And just to make sure that they get the point, he gives them one more gut punch to close the sermon. How about this for a conclusion? Look at verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice the setup there once again. Let all the house of Israel, he reminds them of their heritage. You are the Israelites, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the patriarch David. From David comes the Messiah, and guess what? You crucified him. How about that to end a sermon? You killed the Messiah. Let's pray. (laughs) Peter's not pulling any punches here, is he? He's not going easy on this crowd. He's speaking the truth in love. He says God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And when he says God has made him, it doesn't mean that he wasn't Lord and Christ before the resurrection. What he means is that Jesus is now the reigning, defending, active, enthroned champion, Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. He is now recognized for what he has always been. Now put yourself in the shoes of the crowd. How would you feel hearing that message? How would you react to such a sermon? It's one of the most celebrated holidays of the Jewish calendar year. You've traveled maybe hundreds of miles to get there to Jerusalem. It should be a time of great celebration. And then some guy stands up and starts preaching, quoting scripture, and telling you that you are responsible for murdering the Messiah. How does Peter's crowd react? This is the most amazing part of this whole thing. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Notice the response of the crowd. They're confronted with their sin. It's a pretty big sin too, isn't it? Let's be honest. This is is no small confrontation. I've been confronted with sin before. I've had good, godly men in my life who have pointed out blind spots or stubborn areas of sin I have a great wife who's willing to point out areas that need correcting, and some of those areas are quite large indeed. But I've never had someone say, brother, you murdered Jesus. Literally, you murdered Jesus. So we have to respect the response of the crowd here. They could have gotten defensive. They could have kept mocking. I'm sure some of them did. But Luke records the positive response of this crowd. They heard Peter's words. They were cut to the heart, a verb that that often depicts a sharp pain, a, a violent stabbing pain. They were convicted, sharply convicted, we might say. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? This is the proper response to any message of the word of God in our lives. Janet Miller mentioned before Dr. Matt Mikulak, some of you know him, Many of you know his son, Jeremy, who's one of our pastors here. Dr. Mikulak once pointed out to me that this response here in Acts 2 encompasses the head, the heart, and the hands. They heard Peter's words. There was a mental wrestling with the message. They intellectually came to terms with the gospel. Then their heart was impacted. They were cut to the heart. They were conscious stricken. They were convicted of their guilt and sin. And then their hands got to work. What do we do? How do we change? Is there any remedy for this sin? Head, heart, hands. These three things should be impacted by any great sermon. Sermons should should challenge the mind, get you thinking. They should stir up the heart. 
convict. They should motivate action. What then shall we do? Head, heart, hands. Well, like a good preacher, Peter doesn't just leave them there, does he? He then tells them what to do. Verses 38 to 40. Kind of the second mini-sermon after the sermon. And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Here's the formula. It starts with repent. Repent. What does repent mean? You know what it means? It means to make a complete about face. Your life is going one way, and you turn 180 degrees and go the other way. You stop doing what you were doing, and you start doing something totally different. You turn your life around from where it was. A call to repentance is part of the gospel. Sometimes we might fall into the pattern of only emphasizing the, the free gift part of the gospel. And that's a beautiful part, isn't it? Believe in Jesus, accept this free gift of eternal life, you will be saved. Praise God. That's good. But true acceptance of the gospel results in repentance. If you call yourself a Christian and, and, and yet your life looks exactly the same as it did before you got saved, you might need to look back at that moment of salvation and ask yourself, was I really? Did I truly repent? Did the Holy Spirit actually change anything in my life? Is there evidence of God within me? By the way, this command to repent also tells us that when we share the gospel, we better be telling people about their sin. If you don't share the problem of sin, what in the world are people going to need to repent of? Sin begins the gospel. Now, that's offensive, isn't it? The idea that we're sinners, that's offensive. People don't want to hear that, and yet they need to. Urging repentance from a sinful lifestyle is step one to sharing that gospel. Repent, he says, and be baptized, every one of you. Now, as we'll see in other passages in the book of Acts, this doesn't mean that baptism is necessary for salvation. Unbaptized people will be in heaven. Physically unbaptized people. Everyone that comes to know Christ is spiritually baptized. We've seen that last week. But the thief on the cross, he wasn't baptized, was he? Pretty sure they didn't take those nails out, quit dunk them in water, and then put them back up there before he died. And yet he's going to be in heaven, with par in, in, in paradise with Christ. But I don't want to diminish this command either. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is an important part of someone's salvation experience. Baptism is an outward demonstration of what God has already done within your life. It's step one to repentance. It's part of your Christian experience. We have a baptism class coming up next week, February 4th, February 11th. The purpose is to explain what baptism is, to see, make sure you understand it well enough to know what you're getting into. I'd encourage you, if you're not baptized, but call yourself a believer, come to that class. Now, the beautiful thing is there's a promise here with these commands. Two commands, two promises. Command one, repent. Command two, be baptized. Promise, you'll be forgiven, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You'll be forgiven. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You know what forgiven means? 
The word forgiven is a legal term, or, or rather an accounting term. Your debt has been canceled. That's what it means to be forgiven. Your debt has been erased. Your sin incurs a debt that could never be repaid by you. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. You deserve hell. You have earned nothing but hell from your actions. And yet by believing in Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, resurrection, by calling on the name of the Lord, demonstrating your faith through repentance and baptism, your debt is erased. Instead of hell, we get forgiveness. And then you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will fill your life. He'll give you purpose. He'll give you mission, empowering you for ministry. What a beautiful message this is. Peter says in verse 39 that this promise is for everyone, people who are far off, people who are near. The gospel is for everyone. The command to repent is for everyone. The command to be baptized is for everyone. Children, you don't need to wait to be an adult to ask Jesus to save you, and you don't need to wait to be a teenager or an adult to get baptized. Senior citizens, you are not too far along on your journey to repent of your sin and come to Christ. College students, if you call yourself a Christian, what are you waiting for for your baptism? These are commands for everybody. Church, today is the day of your salvation. Repent, be baptized, be forgiven, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, most miraculously of all, Peter urges them to to take time to understand the gospel. They explain it to them. They take the time with them, and people respond. Head, hearts, and hands, people are saved. Last verse of the day, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Look at how the people respond. They received the word, then they were baptized. That's the proper order, by the way. Baptism comes after salvation. Why didn't we baptize those babies today? Because the pattern we see in Scripture is salvation first, baptism next. It's not necessary for salvation, but it's a demonstration of salvation. And 3,000 people were saved. What an incredible sermon. I'd be thrilled if three people were saved leaving here today. But 3,000, God's Holy Spirit works through the apostles, through the sermon, to move the head, to move the heart, to move the hands of the people. So church, before you walk out these doors, let me ask you this. How are your head, heart, and hands affected by Peter's sermon? Head, do you accept the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that he is Lord God and Messiah? Have you come to terms with your sinful condition? Heart, are you convicted of your sin? Do you have remorse for your lifestyle? Are you moved to respond to the love of Christ and the offer of that forgiveness? Do you want healing from your sin? And hands, what are you going to do about it now? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to respond in repentance and baptism in calling out to Jesus for forgiveness? You see what the people in Acts chapter 2 did in response to the sermon. The question is, what about you? Let me take a moment and pray with you. And I would urge you, if you want to respond to this sermon, I'm happy to pray with you up here. I know some of our leaders would be happy to pray with you. Whoever brought you would be happy to pray with you. But I would urge you 
to respond as the people did here in Acts 2. Lord, I pray that you would move the head, heart, and hands of the people here. Cut them to the heart, Lord. May they walk out of here saying, what now shall we do? Or at least knowing what they shall do and doing it. Lord, fill us again with your spirit. I pray that for those who don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. Let today be the day that they are filled with your spirit, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, thank you for Peter's message. May it sit with us today as we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to come on up if you want some prayer. God bless.